0: Good morning. It's August 6, 2021. Just another day in paradise here in Denver. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 20 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Today, we're going to continue our discussion of ASRs, Aquifer Storage and Recovery Projects. Because our surface supplies are tapped out, Groundwater should come back to play a bigger part in our water future in Colorado. We learned in episodes 15 and 16 that it's probably not prudent to depend on a non-rechargeable aquifer as a source of supply, no matter, no matter if it seems to contain as much water as Lake Erie. Non-rechargeable is the operative word. That implies that some aquifers may be rechargeable. Seems like rechargeable aquifers could be ideal. No evaporation and minimal surface disturbance, as Adam Jokerst explained two weeks ago in Greeley's Terry Ranch Project. The Terry Ranch Project is essentially an underground storage vessel or underground reservoir. The biggest attraction to ASRs, according to Adam is the paucity of permits required to construct an underground reservoir. We've seen that in today's climate, it could take 20 years or more to permit a new surface reservoir, and it could be denied. Do you want to spend millions of dollars and 20 years with the risk that it will be denied? I think I would be searching high and low for an ASR to stretch my supplies and protect me against drought. Pumping operational costs are higher, but the savings of not having to construct a new reservoir dwarfs those operational costs. Today, we are fortunate to tap into the knowledge of Joe Barber, senior hydrogeologist of LRE Water. LRE Water is the oldest water engineering firm in Colorado and is very well respected. Joel worked extensively on technical evaluations of ASR projects. It is exciting that we get to ask him more questions about how ASRs work. Welcome, Joel. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Tommy. Super happy to be here.
0: We heard from Adam that an ASR is essentially an underground reservoir. Can we talk a little bit first, Joel, about firm yield and what that means?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to start. Um, So, firm yield is basically uninterruptible supplies. So, as we've all heard about droughts recently, um, not all water supply is constant and can be interrupted um, based on your seniority on your water rights.
0: To firm junior rights, you need storage, right? And ASR could provide that storage. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, If you don't have a senior right or a firm yield, you need something you can rely on, and that reliability comes with storage. Um, So whether that's a surface reservoir or an underground reservoir, such as an ASR project, um, that's where you're getting your storage from.
0: How much storage does a municipality need?
1: Um, That depends on each municipality. I don't think there's there's a, a strict rule. So Ah, uh, municipalities go through master planning where they identify their growth and their storage needs. So you know these these master plans identify how much storage they need moving into the into the future.
0: But typically, they like for their storage to be more than one year's worth of supply.
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, droughts last many years, so you need many years of storage.
0: You know, I remember when Two Forks was proposed. It seems like they had a 10 to 1 ratio at two forks do you you're not old enough to remember that
1: (laughs) i i am not familiar with that project so (laughs) sorry tommy
0: (laughs) okay how do you evaluate the saturation of an aquifer
1: yeah it's a great question so um aquifers store water um usually in the in the pore space of the rock so if you think of a or or the soil so if you think of a sponge and how it holds water the underground water is stored in a very similar manner. So what we do is we, um, you know, there's, there's literature available. So we look at wells that are present where they tap into the ground, and you can actually measure the water level in, in the aquifer. So how deep the water is. So you can use existing wells that have already been drilled, or if there's no data, you can go drill your own wells and measure how deep the water is. So you measure how deep it is, but that does not tell you how
0: much water is going to be released, i.e. how much you can pump. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, you know, not all aquifers are the same. You know, we, we might describe them as a tight aquifer or a material that doesn't release its water very easily um, or doesn't have much storage. So what you do is called aquifer testing, where you pump on the well. And you you basically, you're stressing the aquifer and you're looking at the aquifer's response to your pumping. And we can evaluate that data to estimate um, the yield or storage in the aquifer.
0: From one well, I can understand that you could determine the yield. But if you have two or six wells in close proximity, do they interfere with one another?
1: Absolutely, they can. So, you know, that's part of the evaluation historically of a, of a supply well field even, I'm not even looking at ASR. So, you know, we, there's, there's a cone or a bowl of drawdown as a well pumps. And so, you know, in a perfect world, we get data not just at a well you're pumping, but at what we call observation points or other wells um, around the well you're stressing that, that gives you even more data um, to evaluate the aquifer and determine how much storage is down there.
0: It almost sounds like you have to be a hydrogeologist to interpret that data. Is that, I assume that's what you learned in school. That's what we learned in school, and that's why we're in business. So. Okay, good. You know, there, there are lots of aquifers under our feet. There's probably one under us right now. How do you locate an aquifer that could be a good candidate for an ASR?
1: Well the the good news is we have been utilizing aquifers for a long time. So there is lots of mapping and historical work done identifying aquifers. So there's not many new aquifers we're finding through a variety of data sources whether it's the USGS, US Geological Survey who's done a lot of Work mapping aquifers um, through geologic mapping. We we have a good understanding of where aquifers are located um, within Colorado, um, and they're they're very well or they're they're managed through the Department of Water Resources and through our water rights process. So, you know, identifying an aquifer for ASR starts with a, a literature review and just our our knowledge of where the aquifers are located.
0: So you've identified where a, an aquifer is located. But that doesn't necessarily tell you if it's a good candidate. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's, we we call it site specific evaluation. So, once you've identified an aquifer and said, okay, we, we know this aquifer exists and we would like to look into storing water, we would then begin evaluating that aquifer specifically for aquifer storage and recovery, which would include evaluating everything from the aquifer conditions with regard to how much water can you inject and how much water you can pull out. Is there enough storage in the aquifer to hold the water? And then there's always water quality. So you have to make sure you're maintaining a good water quality that you can treat and deliver to your customers.
0: If two water districts want to use the same aquifer for an ASR, will there be a conflict and will it turn into sort of a priority system
1: so, it, it becomes a little complex. So, the first question you have to say, what kind of aquifer is it? So, in Colorado, there's, with regard to ASR, we care about th- if it's one of three types. First, it's non tributary. I don't know if you've talked about non tributary aquifers yes,
0: on your yes, podcast. We have.
1: Yeah. So, most ASR projects in Colorado are non tributary groundwater, which means not connected to a river. Um, there's also special designated basins, which are their own administrative aquifers that are administrated individually through a groundwater association. And then there's tributary aquifers, which are aquifers connected to streams. So if you have a non-tributary groundwater and it's decreed non-tributary, so you have a decree from the state and a right to withdraw water, you can then inject and store water in that non-tributary aquifer. If you have that decree, the risk of conflict with your neighbors is very low. So
0: the decree, does it specify how much water you can store every year? Or is there, say, a maximum 10-year average that you can store?
1: So the decree is a withdrawal rate. So if you have a decree non-tributary, it's the amount that you can withdraw. So you would get a, basically, it's it's a permit from DWR to withdraw injected water or stored water. And so for every gallon you inject, you'd be allowed to withdraw that same gallon of water. Um, There are some stipulations on where you can withdraw it, but you're essentially banking that water for withdrawal at any time.
0: So you get a decree to start withdrawing water. And let's suppose your decree says you can withdraw 10,000 acre feet You withdraw that 10,000 acre feet, and then before you can withdraw another acre foot more, you have to put water back into the aquifer. Is that fair to say?
1: Not necessarily. So if your decree allows you to withdraw the, the native groundwater, you could keep pumping, and then essentially you're just depleting the stored water that was naturally stored in the aquifer, like a current groundwater supply project would. But then in your decree, you have a volume of water that you're allowed to withdraw on an annual basis. And so then you would be tapping into that volume that you're allowed to withdraw. Uh, maybe
0: I didn't ask my question exactly right. If your decree says you have the right to withdraw 10,000 acre feet a year and you withdraw that amount, you have not put any back in yet, can you continue to withdraw or you have to stop? You, you would have to stop. Is it easy to inject water?
1: Gravity does the work. You can pressurize the system. So a well might have a pump down it. Um, So currently, if you have a well, you put a pump in the well to pull the water out. Yes. Right. So there are valving that you can apply that lets you inject in that well. Typically, a system will just use their pipe pressure. So you have a delivery system that's going to that well. There's pressure in that pipe.
0: Yeah. In, in other words, if you fill the pipe full of water, now you've got and, and it's say it's five hundred feet deep, and you fill it all the way to top, you've got five hundred feet of pressure.
1: Yep. And and the water will naturally flow underground because that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Yep.
0: How deep have you looked? In your experience at ASRs, are some down as far as 2,000 feet and or others 500 feet? Is there a limitation on how deep you can look?
1: For an aquifer storage and recovery project, we have looked in the 2,000, over 2,000 feet deep. And that's, that's not uncommon in the, say, the Denver Basin. The Laramie Fox Hills is the deepest aquifer of the Denver basin which is the deep bedrock aquifers that supply a lot of municipalities or suburbs around Denver and Castle Rock um, and Colorado Springs and those can be over 2,000 feet deep and they are they are being evaluated as a a potential aquifer for aquifer storage and recovery.
0: Okay and then I want to go back to um, how you locate aquifers. You said the USGS and others have you used oil and gas logs?
1: Absolutely. It's a great data source because um, they use some of the same techniques to identify the geology. Even though they are targeting what we call formations or units that are much deeper um, than a water supply project would would target, Uh, there is still data available that they they log because they have to drill through the aquifers to get to the oil and gas bearing units. Sure, and it
0: would depend on where they start logging. Sometimes they won't start logging until they're 5,000 feet deep.
1: Correct, yeah, so you have to spend a lot of time and uh, get a good grad student to come help you and sift through all that data. And so, so
0: that's one of the things that you do, and is that data available through the, where, where do you get that
1: data? Uh, the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission has a online data viewer where that's, that's all publicly available.
0: So is that sorted by location, township range, I mean, if you were interested in a specific area
1: they have a map tool where you could look on it and just click on the points and download the data. It's it's amazing what the state has done to provide us access to data and what we can do now that 20 years ago, you would have to drive down and look through archives and files that now it's all just on map viewers and online databases. And it's amazing what data you can access. It's yeah, it's crazy how things have changed. We now use Python scripts and coding and all the things you think of, you know, Silicon Valley or anything like that. We're using that to to sort through data and evaluate data, and um, so yeah, so it's it's all inter, intermingled, and the technology really enables us to do what we do.
0: Uh, Adam Jokers st- talked about permitting issues with surface versus groundwater. Could you uh, talk about the ease of permitting, or maybe it's not easy, to permit an aquifer storage and recovery project? And you could compare that if you want to surface.
1: With a surface reservoir, obviously, as you learned from Adam, I mean, the process that they must have gone through in attempt to get their permit was expensive, time-consuming, and highly risky. There's a lot of opposition to surface water storage because of environmental impacts and a variety of factors so when we think about an asr project in colorado if we're just focusing on colorado there's really the permitting process begins with identifying what type of aquifer it is whether it's that non-tributary designated basin or tributary aquifer there is A lot of uncertainty in the permitting requirements if you're in a tributary aquifer or yeah in a tributary aquifer right now so there is a permitting process that is not well defined and there are entities right now trying to pave the path and figure out what that permitting process looks like
0: i'm sorry that's for a tributary Tributary. you're talking about
1: so like an aquifer connected to a river yes now so wait a minute (laughs) um
0: So, it's not impossible to use a tributary aquifer as uh, ASR?
1: Not not impossible. Absolutely possible. But harder? But harder, and there's a lot of permitting and regulatory uncertainty in the process right now. Okay. And so, it is a, a tougher road forward, but from a mechanical and physical and hydrogeologic perspective, possible. From a regulatory perspective, it is still being evaluated. Alternatively, if you're looking at non-tributary aquifers, which is similar to what Greeley has completed and other, other entities are pursuing in, in Colorado and in the Denver Basin and the Laramie Formation, it's, it's much easier. You really just need two permits. You need a EPA underground injection control permit. So there's one EPA permit you need. And then you also need the DWR permit to withdraw injected or stored water. So the EPA
0: permit, that's uh, mainly concerned with water quality, is that correct?
1: Yes. So that's a great way to put it. The EPA manages water quality, and DWR, or the Department of Water Resources, manages water quantity.
0: I had prepared a list of questions, and I'm just kind of going down these, so they may be a little disjointed here. But I want to go back and ask about porosity. I get confused between porosity and permeability. Can you explain the difference?
1: You can have a a clay, which we'd call low permeability, with a, with a decent amount of porosity. But you could have a sand that has the same porosity or a comparable porosity, but it's a high permeability. And that's due to predominantly structure and grain size. So, okay,
0: so it's it's just the definition of the words here that I'm confused about. Permeability means the water flows through it easily.
1: Correct. Okay. So permeability is how easy water can flow through it, and porosity is how much water can be stored per per volume of rock. Or per, we call it, it. It's in a percentage.
0: Yes. In other words, if we were able to dig down in the earth and take a cubic foot of that aquifer and we brought it to the surface and we let the water drain out of it. And then we measured either the volume or the weight of water. If it were 15% of the original weight of the water and the rock together, that means the porosity was 15%.
1: Correct.
0: Ah! Thank you. Can can we speak to the issue of dominion and control? I know dominion and control has a, a legal definition. How far involved are you in dominion and control in your analysis?
1: So dominion and control is essentially what you have to demonstrate if you want to, going back to the tributary aquifers, if you were going to do an ASR project in a tributary aquifer, you would have to demonstrate dominion and control. And also many designated basins would require that. What that means is-
0: But, but wait a minute, you don't have to, have to demonstrate dominion and control in a non-tributary aquifer?
1: Correct. So I think we, stepping back, when you recharge water, you are putting a particle of water underground. You can either, there's two ways to look at it. You can either bank it and recover water that's not necessarily that same particle. Right? So you're getting that volume of water, but you might be recovering a different particle of water than you injected. Dominion and control essentially means the water you inject has to be the exact same water you pull out. Oh, really? So, yeah. So um we we will use the term colors of water to represent different types of water. So let's say you inject blue blue water, let's call it blue, and the, the native water let's call it green. The the water that's in, in the ground. So Dominion and control would mean the blue water you inject has to be, you have to recover blue water. In a non-tributary aquifer, you can inject blue water, but you could recover both blue and green water. And that's the same. So dominion and control really depends on the type of aquifer system you're in.
0: Okay. Are there others out there that might object when you go to permit an ASR project Uh, particularly if it's a non-tributary. For instance, maybe there's a neighbor who has tapped into that non-tributary aquifer and he's afraid that if you start using it, then his level, his water level in his well may go down and he's afraid of that.
1: Is that an issue? I have not seen that yet, but that's obviously plausible. You can't cause harm to your neighbor. Right. And so they, they could oppose your project if, if they felt like you were going to cause them harm.
0: Okay. Um, costs are always important. Again, let, let's take, take a hypothetical that's 2000 feet down. What does it cost to drill a well, log it, and then if it's a good well and you want to com- complete it, what are those three costs?
1: For to drill the hole and install a well with a casing and everything, you're looking at probably three quarters of a million dollars.
0: For a two thousand foot well.
1: Yeah. Ballpark. Okay. Yeah.
0: And and logging it is what fifty thousand?
1: Yes. Yeah, not that expensive.
0: Okay. So when you log a hole, you first drill a hole and you fill it with mud so it won't cave in. Mud is a heavy, dense material. And that's to prevent it from caving in while you insert the log. Is that correct?
1: Correct. Yep. And you, and you have mud when you're drilling a well, you have mud in the hole the whole time. So in, in a, and this is important, there's many ways to drill a well. We typically use what we call mud rotary, which is essentially that you are using mud because it's dense. It provides a positive pressure or a positive pressure out against your whole wall, which keeps it from caving in.
0: What about using, have, if, has anyone brought up using abandoned underground mines
1: as storage? There, there has been discussions. There's been very little progress made on this. There's a lot of questions. Um, it is currently, I would call it a scientific investigation. Uh, people are curious about the idea for sure.
0: Okay. And the final question, we've talked a lot in previous episodes about the Denver Basin Aquifers. Mm-hmm. Are any of the Denver Basin Aquifers candidates for ASR?
1: They are probably the, the the best candidate for ASR in Colorado. Okay. And they are being highly actively pursued as storage. So it, it, they're an aquifer system that has historically been overextracted, um, meaning the water levels are declining. So if you ever heard of them. You know, you hear stories of Central Valley in California with water level declines or Ogallala Aquifer, water level declines are happening. Same thing's happening in the Denver Basin aquifers. So they're they're being very strongly pursued and there are active ASR projects in the Denver Basin aquifer.
0: Great. We've covered a lot of ground today. Next time we'll talk about issues such as water quality and water chemistry. But for now, we should stop. Joe, thank you very much. This is most informative, and I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Tommy, for having me. This was, this was a great experience. Okay, bye.
0: Bye. So we're closing, and I'm sure Joe would enjoy our mountain stream as much as we do. So we'll stop and see you next time.